Welcome to this episode of Safe Home Podcast for struggling teens and their families finding their healing path. This episode is sponsored by Beth Hansen and Lori Hansen. Thank you very much for your support. I am Beth Syverson, a mom of an 18-year-old son, Joey, who's been dealing with addiction and mental health issues for several years. I am walking beside him as he struggles with his recovery while I work on my own personal growth and healing. And I'm very happy today to have Joey joining us on this episode. He's been, yay, (laughs) hey Joe. He's been wanting to be more involved in the podcast lately. He's feeling better. And uh, today's (laughs) guest spurred him on to come on and uh, get in on the conversation. So I'm so glad you're here with us today, Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. I know it's kind of funny what the circumstances were to get me here, but uh, (laughs) I'm really happy. (laughs) We'll take it. We'll take it. Well, today's guest is Jason Wilson. He's a botanist, educator, author, and podcaster whose primary interest right now is cannabis. He studies the chemistry and microbiology of cannabis and has unique expertise in quality management systems and regulatory compliance in the burgeoning cannabis growing industry. He published a science textbook called Curious About Cannabis and has a podcast with the same name. Now, many of you know that Joey struggled for years with a full-on addiction to cannabis, which has been quite debilitating. Despite that, I remain pro-legalization of substances and remain open-minded about how helpful it can be for others, especially adults. And I know some people truly benefit from this amazing plant, either for health or for leisure. And I believe that the more knowledge people have about something, the better they are able to make choices to keep themselves safe. So I, I am personally very concerned about what's going on in high schools and the high rate of usage among teens and the ubiquity yeah. of vaping in our schools. So. Jason is here to talk to us from a scientific perspective about the good and the bad attributes of cannabis, and he'll help us to know what's safe and what's risky, especially as it relates to our teens. So welcome to Safe Home, Jason. We're glad you're here. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm really, really happy to be here. And, uh, you know, Beth, I'd met you before. Joey, this is my first chance meeting you. I was just listening to one of your prior podcast episodes, the last one where Joey was on and you were both talking. So this is a, a pleasure for me to be able to meet you both. Well, yeah, no, thank you. I, I really appreciate you coming on here and uh, telling us about the information that you know. Yeah, he's <laughs> done a deep dive, sounds like. From, <laughs> I, I mean, it's way over my head. I don't, I'm not a scientist at all. So I appreciate yeah, anything you, you so can much. help us with. So I thought I'd just start out by asking, how does the cannabis that we are using today, the kids are using and adults too, are using today. How does it compare to what the parents of our teens used when they were kids? Well, I think that it's not surprising to most people that a lot of the cannabis that's widely available today is on average stronger than what you would find on average, you know, 20, 30 years ago. You know, one thing that people will often argue is that, you know, well, strong cannabis has always been around and that's definitely the case, but it has become much easier to get access to, you know, very high quality, very high potency forms of cannabis that were much more difficult to get your hands on before it existed before just much more common and easier to get. Another thing that's very different is that the types of products that exist today didn't exist before the focus on concentrates, concentrated extracts of cannabis, the vape pens and the different formulations of the liquids that are in those vape pens 
and edibles too, mm -hmm. a lot of that, most of that kind of side of things is totally new. A lot of it started to hit the market maybe as early as around 2013 or so. Mm. So, you know, we're not even a decade into humans starting to experiment with some of these products that are on the market that are cannabis derived. So it's, it is very, very different than we've ever seen. It's like the wild yeah. west out there in some ways, right? There's just so yeah. much going on. It's moving so quickly. Well, especially like in the hemp industry, the hemp side, it's kind of interesting that in the, the hemp markets, there's, there's been an explosion of synthetically derived cannabinoids, THC isomers, these compounds that elicit similar effects to THC, but aren't technically THC and fall into this kind of legal gray area. It's a very uh, difficult time because as parents, at one time, we only had to worry about cannabis flower. Maybe yeah. you'd run into hash. Um, but that would be kind of rare. And now <laughs> there's just all sorts of things. They can get that at 7-Eleven, right? That, those fake ones? Uh, not 7-Eleven, but like smoke shops, head shops and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and do, do you have to be 18 to get those? Yeah, you do have to be 18. But there's ways to get stuff, uh, right. your older, older brother or whatever. It's not hard to get, right? Wow. And so are all those extra types of synthetics they're making, is that causing extra problems health-wise or addiction-wise? How does that relate? It's a little too early to know. Mm. You know, some of these products, like for instance, there's a cannabinoid called THCP, which is thought to be maybe 30 times as potent as THC. Whoa. You know, that, that's just starting to be mass produced and make it on the market. There's another compound called HHC, hexahydrocannabinol, that has similar effects to THC that's coming on the market. And one of my concerns beyond the effects of these cannabinoids themselves in working in the labs, what I've seen is that a lot of these products are very um, dirty, like the chemistry done to produce them is not very clean. And so there are a lot of chemical byproducts that usually kind of piggyback in these products. And we don't know what some of those compounds are. We've got a pretty good idea about some of them. And then others, um, you know, some of that's still a mystery. So there's, there's kind of multiple angles to this. There's what's the safety profile of the compounds that you're actually trying to ingest. Mm -hmm. And then what's the safety profile of <laughs> wow. all these unknown compounds that are coming along for the ride. Uh -huh. um, so it's, it's just too early to say. I would say in the context of Delta-8 THC, which has gotten really popular, um, there is a lot of science and research that's been done on that chemical. And so if it's a clean source of Delta-8 THC, we have a good sense of how safe it is. And, um, you know, it's a little weaker than Delta-9 THC. Um, so it's generally not as much of a concern as some of these other compounds that are meant mm -hmm. to be stronger than mm -hmm. THC. And that's where you start to get into concerns about, I don't know if, if you both remember back in the late nineties, early two thousands, all the stuff that was going on, yeah. going on with mm -hmm. spice and K2, these plant mm -hmm. materials are being sprayed with synthetic cannabinoids and people are getting, you know, sick and some people would get dizzy and fall over. And there were reports of people, you know, hitting their heads on the ground or, oh, wow. uh, different things like that, you know, just accidents that would happen that would bring people into the ERs. Wow. And so I worry about the mentality of the industry, you know, trying to chase these, you know, quasi legal, uh, routes of uh, trying to recreate what THC does, um, that it kind of, I don't know. It just kind of harkens back to those days of Spice and K2 for me that make me feel very uncomfortable. Yeah, because I've seen like interviews of those Spice addicts. That's not 
weed probably they've they've done other things like meth or something but you can see like it's not just weed it's like synthetic like you said and probably has those um chemicals that piggyback with the other chemicals that fuck you up they're ultra ultra potent and so they just kind of you know in our bodies we have this physiological system that was discovered in the late 90s that medical science still hasn't really incorporated well, which is the endocannabinoid system, the Mm -hmm. system of receptors and signaling compounds in the body that are very similar to THC. Does that include the CB1 and CB2 receptors? Yeah. Yeah. CB1, CB2. And then there's a bunch of kind of um, putative receptors that may become like the CB3 or CB4 receptor, you know, it's still fairly new. And so things like the synthetic cannabinoids that were on spice and K2, those compounds were so potent, they basically would just send that system, the endocannabinoid system, into just kind of a constant overdrive, just really bombarding that system. Whereas in in that context, THC in herbal cannabis is actually pretty weak compared mm-hmm. to those compounds. And so, you know, it kind of more, it has a strong effect on the system, but nothing like some of those synthetics. And so... Yeah, it, it definitely is kind of a wild, wild west, um, yeah. like you said. Uh, do you mind if I ask your testing or like all the testing procedures you've seen? Because I, I know there's like advanced <laughs> ones that like pick out the each individual notes or whatever of each uh, molecule or something. But then there's like mm-hmm. just like testing with strips and then there's like, what are the testings? So the way to kind of think about that is that there's there's kind of two main forms of testing. You have what's called qualitative testing and quantitative testing. And qualitative testing is more of like test strips, tests that kind of tell you, yes, this has THC in it, or kind of like your urinalysis test that will say, yes, you know, you have more than X amount of THC in your system. A quantitative test is something that will tell you the actual concentration of that molecule in a sample of some sort. And so very briefly, some of the technology that would be used to do some of that. um, So kind of a simple method that people can learn at home is called thin layer chromatography. And that's a method that um, if you ever take a community college or uh, early college level chemistry class, you do this this, uh, technique in almost every beginner chem lab. And you basically just, you have these glass plates that have silica sprayed on them and you take a little bit of an extract of a sample and you put a little dot on that plate and you develop the plate by putting it in a jar or a tank or something where it's exposed to a certain solvent. And then um, you kind of see all these bands show up in a line on the plate and the bands represent different molecules that have separated out as the sample's been spread across that plate. And uh, it's a really fun technique to do. You can get kits to do it for like $100 online. Um, Even to test cannabis, people can test their own cannabis at home if they wanted to, to get a sense of potency. Um, And that can be both qualitative or quantitative, depending on how you use it and you know, how, how you quantify those dots. Mm -hmm. Um, But then like in my lab, what I would normally use to measure a lot of these chemicals in different products would be things like gas or liquid chromatography where the samples, you know, these have Mm -hmm. big machines where Mm -hmm. these samples are injected in these big machines and the machines, you know, uh, separate out through different ways, every molecule that's in that 
complex mixture, and then each molecule passes through a detector that will then, on a computer screen, yeah. create a graph that will show you all these peaks and valleys that mm-hmm. correspond with what's there. So that's just kind of an overview. And then there's all sorts of devices that use like infrared lights and stuff to try to kind of do really mm-hmm. fast spot checks on mm-hmm. on products too. Those yeah. are a lot less reliable though. And your your job, well, you do the you do a lot of educating, but when you're doing the science part of your job, your job is to create systems that help regulate or standardize what the products are is that am I getting yeah that close? most most of my consulting these days because when I so when I was getting started in working with cannabis in labs most of my focus was in quality systems trying to figure out how do we defend the data we produce in the lab how do we show that we know that our data is accurate and precise and everything and then that kind of spun out into eventually working with producers to try to help them understand like, okay, once you can trust the lab data, uh, what's going wrong with your data from the production side and how do we ensure that your products are consistent every batch, that you know what's in them, that you know that there aren't hidden problems there that may come out that uh, could open you up to liability. Uh. And, And then in the hemp side of things, a lot of my lab consulting is helping companies comply as best as they can with the FDA. And that's complicated because Mm. the FDA still hasn't been very clear on what (laughs) hemp producers should be doing um, and how that's all regulated. Everyone kind of has this hands-off approach of not wanting to touch it. Yeah, because legal problems and stuff, I bet. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, my goal is both on the analytical lab side and on the production lab side, trying to make sure that everyone... that they're getting the results they wanted and expect and that they're consistent. That's really interesting because how do you get a consistent batch? Mm -hmm. And and let's think in terms of like how can teens or parents or grownups that want to use weed legally, how do they know what they're getting? What's the best, safest way? Yeah. Like how, how how do they get, or if they want to grow their own, for like health reasons, mm-hmm. what would be a good way to get a qual- quality and also like like a good product? You know, it's tricky because it, you kind of have to start critically evaluating labs that are in your state. If you're mm-hmm. like in the home grow situation or making products yourself, you you know, um, in every state that has legal cannabis, for the most part. They have labs somewhere in the state um, that are focused on that. It's just become a big market, you know, that a lot of scientific companies have kind of recognized, like, we need to have a presence in these states. Um, That wasn't the case just a few years ago. The lab testing market has changed quite a lot in the past five years or even three years or so. For people that are buying products from a store... You want to know that a product has what's called a certificate of analysis, some test result associated with that product. Now, this gets really tricky because a lot of companies commit fraud when it comes to lab test results, uh, and this can show up in a lot of different ways. What I tell people is if they're looking at a test result for a product, you first want to make sure that that test result matches the batch of the product that you have in your hand. It shouldn't be a test result from like three years ago on a, you know, some random batch that the producer's just using in perpetuity. That doesn't tell you anything. So one, trying to make sure that the data you're looking at actually 
relates to the product in hand. But then from there, you have to be able to trust the lab that produced the data. And so unfortunately, right now where the industry's at, there is a lot of lab testing fraud that's been going on. And consumers have to take on way too much responsibility themselves to kind of look into these organizations, look into these companies and try to come to their own conclusions about how trustworthy yeah. they are. And, and and that's where a lot of my teaching comes in because I do a lot of workshops and stuff mm-hmm. where we look at test results and I try to go through, you know, what goes through my mind when I'm mm-hmm. looking at a test result to try to help people um, think the same way, to ah. think very critically about all that data and to know what questions to ask. And But it gets, it gets tough. Um, there's a lot of just crummy products on the market that I would never touch. (laughs) Um, and then there's really good high quality stuff. that's very clean. That's been well tested by very reputable labs. And it just kind of all blends together, unfortunately. Yeah. And like with, especially with how new it is in this society, it's like, there's going to be a lot of trial and error at this point with getting it to a point of like, 70 even 75 percent clean you know yes yeah absolutely how like what do you think the percentages of let's say dispensary products what percentage are clean like really clean well so that depends on how you define clean so if we're talking about pesticides that's improved quite a bit over the years and i'd say probably um about 90 percent or so of what's on the shelves is Hmm probably pretty clean when it comes to pesticides. The thing that things that I get that I wonder about are things like mycotoxins, which are these compounds produced by molds that can be extracted. So sometimes depending on what state you're in, some companies will take cannabis flour that's gone moldy and they'll extract it to say, well, we've gotten rid of the mold and we've extracted the oil. And so it's clean now. And that may be the case, but they may also be extracting mycotoxins. They may also be pulling all sorts of other kind of weird um, chemicals that the fungus makes. So there's, there's just kind of, you know, those sort of things that we don't have data, very good data on right now, things like pesticides, residual solvents, um, those kinds of things we have good data on. And in places like California or Oregon, uh, Colorado, you know, most stuff that's made it to the dispensary is pretty clean. Highly regulated, uh, like compared to most states, right? Yeah. Now, what about if you're not in one of those states or if you're a kid getting stuff off the street? So that's a big concern um, because the the black market has evolved in a interesting way in these places where where cannabis has been made legal um, because you have the clean product that makes it to the shelves in places like California. The stuff that's not clean usually makes it out the back door to the black market across the country. You know, so there's still a lot of backdoor dealing in legal states like California and Oregon, mm-hmm. where companies are getting dirty product and finding another market for it by getting it on the black market, shipping it to Atlanta, mm-hmm. Memphis, you know, wherever on the East Coast and and getting it out that way. There's some weird trends too, you know, like with um concentrated extracts there was a disturbing trend of dealers that were selling pine rosin 
that had been oh. melted down and made to look like oh. what's called shatter, which is a, a kind of a solid cannabis extract that breaks yeah. like glass. It looks very much like pine rosin when you melt it down and filter it and stuff. But if you smoke that, that stuff coats your lungs and can cause lipoid pneumonia and other problems. And those kinds of issues are definitely far greater uh, problem in places that haven't legalized yeah. in any way yet. Yeah. And then cannabis flower, the black market has always had a bad problem with molds and uh, of course, pesticides, black market grows are notorious for using quite a bit mm -hmm. of pesticides. And then they often lie about it <laughs> when, when people ask or, you know, they want to buy it. And so, um, yes, things like pesticides, molds, and additives. The the black market vape pen market is is very um, nerve wracking to me. Uh, you know, I have friends that have bought vape pens off of the black market and brought them to me to ask me. You know, like, is this safe? What do you think about this? What's in it? You know, this sort of thing. And a lot of it I see with weird additives in it that are likely problematic. There was just a paper that came out very recently that showed that when you heat up what's called acetylated cannabinoids, um, which THCO acetate is one of these acetylated cannabinoids, and it's become kind of popular in the in the hemp market and the more of the underground cannabis black market. It has been around since the 90s, but it turns out that these acetylated cannabinoids form pr a pretty toxic gas when they are put under heat. And so there's all sorts of concerns there as far as what are people getting? Do they know what they're getting? If they're getting extracts or vape pens and things, do they know what's been added to them? There was the E-Valley crisis back in 2019, you know, where vape pens were causing lung failures in a lot of people. And there's speculation yeah. that that was caused by vitamin E acetate that was being added to these vape pens. Yeah, no, actually my close friend had his lung collapse due to a vape pen. Oh, wow. Yeah. And there, there's speculation that some of that may be caused by what happens when, you know, so like vitamin E, it, it's mm -hmm. a fairly big lipid. And so when you vaporize it, I mean, you can imagine it just gunks up your lungs and kind of coats it, makes it hard for the lung to function. But vitamin E acetate, just like the acetylated cannabinoids, mm -hmm. it's an acetylated molecule and it probably forms this toxic ketene gas. And it's right in your lung. Yeah. And so you can start to see lung failure and... Also, it can cause your lungs to lose their ability to filter out things that shouldn't be crossing the gas oh. blood barrier there. And so you start to get a lot of toxins from the air and smoke and things that pass right on into your blood because, you know, you usually stop coughing. You kind of lose that coughing reflex, which is a big part of keeping things out that aren't supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. And then the mucus lining of the lungs are a big part of that defense to keep bad things out and these compounds are notorious for stripping oh. that mucus lining out of your lungs. Oh, so wow. yeah, there's just all sorts of additives in these extracts and vape pens, particularly on the black market, because a lot of the legal states have enacted rules to ban additives in a lot of these vape pens that make it to dispensaries. Mm -hmm. And it's tricky because my personal experience with some of my friends, the black market vape pens that have these additives often mm -hmm. uh, taste really good. You don't mm -hmm. cough. So they're very appealing, whereas the vape pens that are only using cannabis extract in them, they often are a little harsh and make you cough a lot. Mm -hmm. So you can see why people would naturally 
be drawn towards these things that are actually less healthy. And you can see why kids would be drawn to those too. Um, I mean, some of them taste just like candy. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. What are the kinds of flavors you've seen, Joey? Literally anything you can think of. (laughs) Yeah. The black market when it comes to um, vape pens and stuff, not just for THC, but for anything. Vape is just like marketed for people who like sugary stuff and Mm -hmm. who don't like irritated throats. And that essentially falls under kids, you know? Yeah, yeah. They're, they know what they're doing, right? It's the whole marketing scheme is to get a long-term customer. Yeah, it works pretty yeah. well, too. <laughs> and Joey is hooked on nicotine, too, which is kind of going to be a long-term yeah. project. But there are some people that I run into that poo-poo the whole cannabis thing, like, oh, you can't get addicted, whatever. It's just cannabis, just cannabis. I hear that all the time. And I'm yeah. like, it is not just cannabis. It's totally derailed my son's life. <laughs> And and it has made him really sick. And it's not the same as what we used to have. And I do believe that you can get addicted to it, right? Yeah. So beyond kind of all the speculation, one thing that I, I point to is a lot of people that are advocates in the cannabis space have a lot of respect for this one particular scientist, Dr. Raphael Meshulam, who was one of the early pioneers back in the 60s that discovered that THC was the compound that intoxicated people and and dogs. The research they were doing was with dogs, but his lab and and the researchers that have worked under him have done some of the most progressive and interesting cannabis research uh, to date, all out of Israel. And I had an email correspondence with him a couple of years ago because we were trying to get him on the Curious About Cannabis podcast to talk and uh, he's been in rough health. I mean, he's in his 90s, but he was willing to email uh, back and forth with me. And, and we talked a little bit about this and even he acknowledged that yes, there is a, around a nine to 10% addiction rate with cannabis mm. among chronic users. That's relatively low compared to things like alcohol and, yeah. and tobacco. And of course, things like cocaine and heroin and other things like that. But what it's very similar to, and, and Joey just pointed this out when we were starting to talk about it is it's, almost the same addiction rate that you find in what are called process addictions. Mm -hmm. These would be things like gambling addictions, Mm -hmm. shopping addictions, uh, people that are addicted to working, uh, working out, um, or even, uh, people that struggle with like bulimia or anorexia, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a, an inverse kind of addiction Mm -hmm. cycle, but it's, it's very similar Mm -hmm. things going on psychologically. And so you can, Think of cannabis, you know, the way the receptors and everything in your body work, your body never gets into a situation where it can't produce its own cannabinoids and where it needs these exogenous cannabinoids. But absolutely, yes, psychologically, Mm -hmm. um, you can develop a process addiction to cannabis um, where you you feel extreme cravings, where you think constantly about when you're going to use it next. And, you know, my wife is a mental health therapist. We've talked a lot about this before of like, what's the you know, where's the line, that fuzzy line between responsible use Mm -hmm. and substance abuse and addiction and all of that. And one of the the key components is, are you, is the use of the substance and your thought about the use of the substance interfering with responsibilities and obligations and things that you genuinely care about in your life? You know, is it keeping you from Mm self-actualizing those sorts of things? Is it delaying you from moving to the next step in your life? You know, those sorts of things. And yeah, I mean, I I think when we think about addiction that way, Mm -hmm. absolutely any substance we use, any activity we engage in 
can become problematic and we can use as a crutch in some form or another. And for some people, it never becomes a problem and other people it does. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I enjoy in like talking on podcasts like this is just driving that discussion that, you know, like, let's be real about this. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it is a very safe natural product, Mm -hmm. you know, physiologically, Mm -hmm. but there is a psychological component that absolutely has to be addressed. And, you know, certainly the harms of cannabis have been exaggerated for Mm. many, many, many years, but we have to be careful not to swing the pendulum too far the other way to minimize the very real risks. And, you know, the other side too is regardless of whether someone gets addicted or not, there's cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. That's a very real risk for certain people with genetic predispositions for it. Yeah. Joey has that. Yeah. (laughs) Or if they use cannabis chronically. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's it's far more common than people acknowledge or appreciate. Yeah, no, it's it's like that thing like um those people that actually do have CHS feel like they don't want to say anything and the people that know yes. about CHS don't say anything because it's like tainting the idea that cannabis is like this perfect drug. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. the experience I've had in teaching classes I've now had quite a few students that have talked to me on the side and said, Hey, this is actually something I struggle with or have mm-hmm. lived through. And I used to think that CHS was a very rare condition. And now it just comes up too often in my classes. I mean, yeah. you know, one or two people in a 10 to 20 person class, every class, yeah. you know, that's roughly 10% yeah, that's a lot. of my students are reporting having struggled with it or actively struggling with it. And it's something that a lot of the cannabis industry, I mean, especially on social media, you see people that just will get into fights, you know, online about this saying that like, no way CHS isn't real. It's a misdiagnosis. It's caused by pesticides. You know, it's your lifestyle, not the cannabis. But there was a research study done, I believe it was in 2020 or 2021 that uncovered some of the genetic variables behind CHS that really showed that this is a cannabinoid issue. This is something related to how someone's endocannabinoid system and all of the the nuanced variables that play into that system, how they can be predisposed to reacting negatively to high frequent doses of cannabinoids. And we're not even sure it's just THC. It could also be other cannabinoids. CBD might also be a problem for some people. And we're just learning about it at that level, you know? And so I think the more we learn about it, we'll discover that more people are struggling with it. The more states that legalize, um, you'll have more people talking to their doctors about it. Um, And the more doctors that learn about cannabis and the endocannabinoid system, they will start to recognize it and ask about it more. So it's one of those things that every year that goes by, it's becoming less and less rare. And it's, it's something that now there is... There is a genetic test for it now that people can ask their doctors for. Yeah, I can put that link in the show notes. That's great. Yeah, that's one of the things we want to do in this podcast is, you know, we're neither pro or anti-cannabis itself, but just let's get the facts. Let's figure out what is possible. How can you arm yourself with this stuff and how is it good for you? And just and I think if parents can be just realistic, okay, Mm -hmm. this stuff is everywhere in your kid's school. Maybe you should start talking to your kid when they're like, I don't know, nine, 10. Yeah, absolutely. And talk about 
Like, Joey, what would have helped you when you were nine or 10? Obviously, not all the science stuff, but like the idea is that, yes, it's still addictive. There's a possibility of you getting very bad tummy aches or something like that. Like, just talk like to a kid, but like with what we're talking about, you know? Yeah, just be an open conversation. Yeah, it it shouldn't be a a taboo thing to talk about because it's very important, especially how um, popular it is now. Yeah. Joey's first experience with cannabis was in his science class. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Not in the like scientific way, though. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you can't imagine when I was in school, you had to smoke a joint. You can't smoke a joint in class, but these kids. <laughs> it's hard to get away with. These kids are vaping and getting away with it everywhere. It's really yeah. a bad problem. Oh, yeah. Well, with that in the edibles, too. I mean, oh, edibles, yeah. you know, there's there's no vapor, no smoke, no smell. I mean. That's a relatively safe way to ingest it, except for that it, it's very powerful and people often overdose on it, right? Yeah. Well, the uh, like psychologically overdose. Yeah. I mean, the THC, when you eat it, when it gets to your liver, it gets metabolized to a compound called 11-OH-THC. And 11-OH-THC, once it then passes from your liver into your bloodstream and then goes to your brain, it's three to four times as potent as THC. And your liver will usually metabolize about half of the THC that makes it to the liver. So, you know, your brain gets about half a dose of 11-OH-THC and half a dose of THC. And so that's why the effect of edibles is so unique and often so strong. And, you know, I'm not a medical doctor, et cetera, et cetera. Don't listen to anything I say and use it for, you know, anything you Mm -hmm. ingest. But my experience has been in working with doctors and things. When we talk about a therapeutic setting, working with patients, you're usually trying to find a minimum effective dose with that patient. And for a lot of people, their minimum effective dose is somewhere between four and 10 milligrams of THC. Um, Some of these, and that's for conditions other than like really, really, really severe Mm -hmm. cancer or something like that, where they would take higher doses, but often it's it's fairly low and and their dose will go up over time, obviously, because they develop tolerance and everything. But in general, it's a lot lower than people expect. And some of these edibles that are on the market may have a hundred milligrams or more of THC oh my in them. Gosh. And so, you know, you can see how far you may be overshooting yeah. the mark and what's a concern with kids, particularly in getting accustomed to these high doses of edibles is, you know, obviously the cannabinoid hyperemesis issue, but you know, uh, there's, there's several problems bombarding your endocannabinoid system with those high doses constantly develop this tolerance that just pushes you into astronomical doses. Mm-hmm. Some people doing a thousand milligrams or more a day just to get slightly yeah. beyond plateau, you know, yeah. kind of effects. And it, once again, talking about like how new this stuff is, like we don't know what that's doing yeah. to someone's body sure. or what it, what systems it's affecting. And there's another saying in the industry that I'm uncomfortable with where people will often say, well, all cannabis use is medical in some way. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard that mm-hmm. or some kind of play on that phrase, but I think that's another one of these little kind of memes that's actually doing us a disservice because it's like I, I get where people are coming from that all cannabis is affecting your endocannabinoid system in some way. But that's like saying that, you know, uh, all heroin use is oh, yeah. medical in some way because it affects your, you know, yeah. opiate receptors in your dopamine yeah. system. Same with sugar. I mean, everything. Right, exactly. Right? Sugar is a great example. And so it's, yeah, it's just one of these things of, 
you know, you really have to gain some perspective. And if, if someone is needing to use 50 milligrams, 100 milligrams plus to get a basic you know, effect, unless they have a, a pretty significant medical condition, that's, mm. that's probably a bad situation. So are you interested in telling me how much, how many milligrams you, you take? Oh, I don't know by milligrams. At the most, I've gone through like 14 Gs in one day. A flower? Yeah. How many milligrams? At, of- like, let's say like 28%. So on average, you'd have 200 milligrams per gram if it's a 20% THC flower. So if you went through 14 grams, 2,800 milligrams. So that's a lot, right? It's high, very high. (laughs) It's very high. Yeah. So that's probably how you got CHS from that high dosage. CHS one and then possibly how my tolerance is so high. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And why you know, taking that much, yeah, you're not able to work, mm-hmm. you're not able to get out of bed. Well, no, this this whole, like, talk has really given me just those little bits of information that, like, oh, so that's what that does, or, like, you know, those little... Or understanding why. Yeah, exactly. It really is helpful. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Like, it... Yeah. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, yeah I'm going to listen to this a couple of times just to regain my <laughs> knowledge on what it is yeah. and stuff. But, like, it's so interesting how, like, I'm probably going to remember, like, a few little things when I'm, like, smoking and be like, oh, so that's how that works or something like that. And then probably <laughs> cut back <laughs> because... The more you talked about like the tolerance and the science behind it, it was really cool. For me, I love science and it's like really understanding to implement that into my life once it's scientific based. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, the dosing is so interesting because cannabis has what's called a biphasic effect. It does one thing at a low dose and it does totally different mm-hmm. things at a high dose. And particularly in the context of anxiety, um, when you get a tiny bit of THC in your system, THC has this anxiety relieving effect and it's related to, to get a little technical, but I love talking about it because it's, it's super fascinating. So you have in your brain what are oh, called yeah. GABA receptors and, and GABA neurotransmitters and glutamate neurotransmitters and receptors. And GABA is considered kind of the inhibitory system that kind of brings down the activity of the central nervous system. Glutamate is more of an excitatory thing that elevates the activity of the central nervous system. And so you can imagine if you want to relieve anxiety, you want to boost GABA a little bit. And so THC at a certain dose, when you first start using it, it will inhibit glutamate and in essence, then boost GABA. And so you get this calming effect, but then if you keep using and you get more THC, all of a sudden it starts inhibiting GABA. And then you get a boost in glutamate. And so you have this like back and forth happening where you're actually producing anxiety in an effort to calm the anxiety. And you get caught in a loop where you're constantly trying to reduce your anxiety, but you're producing more anxiety in the process, which keeps you in a a vicious kind of cycle. But like, I I relate with that because I didn't know what was going on in in my head, but it literally felt like I'm trying to regulate some stuff. Yeah. And you get, you get sometimes paranoid. I wonder if that's from. Yeah, no, no, I do. That really helps me just visualize what's happening in my head. You know, it's like, oh, so. Your brain is trying to figure it out. It's trying to balance. Yeah. No, I was literally just trying to figure out what's happening. <laughs> like, okay, there yeah, you go. Yeah, no, it's 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 an interesting, and it just goes back to the idea of you know the goal in in terms of therapeutic use of cannabis 
is finding that minimum effective dose, trying to Mm -hmm. find that dose where you notice a change and then trying Mm -hmm. to avoid going beyond that. And that's Mm -hmm. the hard part is, you know, trying to stay there and not go beyond. And it might be worth mentioning for people listening, um, maybe what some options Mm -hmm. there may be if they find that they've gone too far or their child has Mm -hmm. used too much THC and is feeling paranoid or, you know, that sort of thing. There's actually quite a few kind of, um, remedies out there that are, that can be fairly useful. Um, one is trying to use other cannabinoids to displace the THC. So CBD and CBG can be useful, um, in trying to, uh, basically what they do is they slightly alter the shape of the CB1 receptor so that it doesn't work quite as well as it normally would. So that can help kind of bring some of that down a little bit, but also there's a product on the market called undo, which is a kind of like a THC kind of antidote product that uses a compound called a Livitol as its main ingredient. And for the nerds out there listening, a Livitol is kind of neat because the way that the cannabis plant produces THC and other cannabinoids is it takes a Livitolic acid, this acidic form of Livitol, and combines it with another molecule, and that's how you get cannabinoids. So it's interesting that a Livitol can actually interrupt some of that activity. But even beyond that, there are these ancient, I mean, I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of years ago, people were writing about using lemon water to reduce the effects of cannabis intoxication. Um, also calamus root, and you can sometimes find calamus root extracts and things, um, which you have to be careful of because some species of calamus can be toxic at high doses. So you kind of want to use that sparingly, but it can be very potent. Also, even things like pine nuts have some compounds that can help relax you and bring down that paranoia. And then Neil Young was noted for saying uh, one time, I think in Rolling Stone or something, that if you chew on peppercorns, that it can help bring you down. And that there's some science to that too. They have cannabinoids. Yeah, they have a compound in them called beta-caryophylline, which is considered a dietary cannabinoid. It interacts with CB2 receptors and um, doesn't interact with CB1 at all. And it can kind of um, Hmm. maybe help. That's the theory is that it can maybe help balance some of these things out. But I know people that swear by all of these different remedies and have reported, you know, different levels of success with them. And also just eating food too. If someone's in an uncomfortable situation, just getting food in your stomach, drinking lots of water, uh, ideally lemon water um, can all help to kind of, bring that down and hopefully get back to a stable situation. Yeah. And, you know, cause sometimes when people have a psychological overdose with cannabis, I mean, yeah. it can feel like a crisis, you know, sort of situation. Yeah. Um, so that at least hopefully can give people some tools to yeah. try to deal yeah. with those situations. So the cannabis itself won't kill you, but the, it, it kind of can stimulate a crisis and you might do something impulsive or yeah marijuana is a psychedelic at like probably higher doses i would assume so you Mm -hmm. can get into a a psychotic state yeah and especially if you're genetically predisposed to any type of mental health issue high doses of cannabis can precipitate manic episodes in people Mm -hmm. with bipolar it can precipitate psychotic episodes in people that are predisposed to schizophrenia it's just complicated. You know, cannabis itself is very physiologically safe, yeah. but it's like, yeah. what other things are yeah. you bringing to the table in your body? You know, what are you bringing to the table that the cannabis isn't? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's very complicated. Yeah, definitely. And I just want to touch on 
two small things. I think this will be quick. Fentanyl. Fentanyl can mm-hmm. be just in anything off the street, right? So the kids getting the, yeah. the black market stuff, they could be getting fentanyl in their in their weed. Maybe this is an area where there's not good, clear data on whether this is a problem that is um, significant or not. Fentanyl and weed. Fentanyl definitely is a problem, but fentanyl specifically in weed. Right, specifically fentanyl contamination in cannabis. Yeah, there have been a couple of reports in the news about it, um, but then I've seen follow-up reports where um, like some of the lab data that come back is either inconclusive or they found oh. fentanyl like contaminated in such minor quantities that they suspect that the user may have had it on their fingers or something and reached mm-hmm. in their bag. But it is something to be concerned about because that type of contamination has been a problem forever. I remember back in the late 90s, there were reports of metals being sprayed onto black market cannabis to make them weigh more. Oh, wow. You know, so that you could sell bags for more and, you know, basically cutting it with these metals, which were toxic and poisoning people. Yeah, it it just depends. You know, it's one of those things when you're dealing with the black market, anything can go if you don't know where things are coming from and you don't know whether you can trust persons giving it to you. You know, when it comes to the black market, you have people that operate in the black market that actually care about health and safety and actually do want to like get people clean things. But then the majority of them don't feel that way and are just trying to make money. So, you know, I just say, you know, sort of a precautionary approach, just assume that something's wrong with it. Yeah. Unless you you know, know everything about how that product got to you. Yeah. Um, just kind of assume the worst. And yeah. I got Joey some fentanyl test strips for when stuff looks kind of fishy or if he's getting stuff from that, the dispensary. Nice. So yeah. from Amazon, I think anyone can get those. And, and you just put it in a vial with mm-hmm. the substance, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one idea. There's often in some states, depending on where you are, there are like anonymous drug testing organizations where you can drop off whatever it is, whether it's cannabis or pills or whatever, and they'll test it and they'll post the results publicly. And so you just kind of know your like little code or whatever Uh to find the product that you dropped off. And then you can see whether it was contaminated or not, but you never have to give them your name or anything like that. Yeah. I I know one, I think it's called like drug labs or something like that. Yeah. I've heard of those. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the most, most common organizations. We're just trying to, you know, while if you're addicted, for instance, you're just trying not to kill yourself while yeah. you're trying to get off of the thing, right? Right. <laughs> and right. if and if you're using it for leisure, yeah, you don't want to kill yourself over it. You're you're trying to use it for or for health purposes. Either way. Yeah. So you're not trying to kill yourself. So trying to be as safe as possible. And out of all the modes to use cannabis, what's the safest, like, like physiologically? Edibles. Edibles. Because um, yeah. you're not putting stuff in your lungs. What I what I tell people is what I would consider the cleanest, safest, what I would be the most comfortable consuming myself would be oil solutions. So what people often call tinctures, but technically tinctures are ethanol products, but like these MCT oil based, um, liquid solutions. I think those are nice because you can dose consistently. Um, they're relatively shelf stable, um, when they're produced the right way. Mm -hmm. Um, I've seen products in the lab where people try to use like hemp seed oil and stuff as the carrier and it goes rancid. Um, So you do have to like 
get a sense of the producer, make sure they know what they're doing. But when done right, those oil solutions are very, very nice for dosing and consistency. And, you know, you're not smoking. And especially if the extract that was used to make it is kind of a, uh, what people often refer to as a whole plant extract, you know, a broad spectrum extract, something that's really capturing the broad chemistry of the plant and not just THC oh. or a very narrow range of chemicals. Oh. Um, because all these, you know, the plant is very interesting. Humans have co-evolved with it to some degree for a long time. And the plant has a lot of other chemicals besides THC in it that help counteract some of the oh. negative aspects of THC. And so I think it's very important to keep that yeah. chemistry together to reduce negative effects and to get the most yeah. positive out of it. I usually don't uh -huh. recommend gummies uh -huh. just because of the sugar. <laughs> you know, I don't, I'm not a fan of edibles that are, that are chalked with sugar. Cause then you're like yeah. adding another <laughs> health problem on top of yeah, yeah. Uh, something else. But yeah, I think that's, that's what I would, yeah. I would settle on. And then you said broad spectrum for people that I guess don't know what broad spectrum is it's like live resins mm -hmm. and live rosins hash like hash oils and stuff like that usually usually things that are derived from ethanol extraction Eth ethanol is a great solvent for kind of capturing and that's why tinctures are made from ethanols you know it really captures mm -hmm. the quote-unquote spirit of the plant <laughs> um because ethanol is a very broad solvent that grabs all sorts of different molecules other than that, there's also solventless extracts that have been made just through dry sifting or, you know, rosin is the process of using a basically a heat press to push plant material and kind of ooze the oils out um, and collect them that way. You know, those kinds of products are nice because you know that there just hasn't been stuff added yeah. mm -hmm. to it mm -hmm. that you have to worry about so much. And it hasn't been processed chemically refined or yeah, processed in that way. Yeah. yeah. Well, this has been so helpful. And I wondered if there's something that you would like to say that I haven't asked you about anything that you want to let parents know. You know, I think the main thing, cause I'm a parent myself and this is all stuff that I think about all the time, especially because I work with cannabis so much. Cannabis is a part of my daughter's life and has been since she was born, you know? And so thinking about how do we approach this topic in a way where she grows up to be, to think of it in a mature way. You know, I think we've touched on some of it, but it's good to summarize, to be speaking frankly about these topics at a, probably a much earlier age than you think you should. Yeah. yeah it's more important. Uh, it's, and kids, like you pointed out, kids are being exposed to these things at ages that are far younger than you think they are. I know kids that as early as eight years old, have, you know, been exposed to cannabis, mm -hmm. usually through vape pens. Mm -hmm. And so it's important that they know that they've been mentally primed for how to process this stuff when it gets thrown in their face and that they have a realistic sense of what could go wrong and so that they can make an informed decision for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so doing what we can collectively to reduce stigma around mm -hmm. cannabis and to just speak openly about it. And like we've done here, try to talk about, you know, that there are all of these therapeutic applications, but then things can definitely go wrong too. I think that is one of the best things that we can do, just making our kids feel comfortable talking to us. I love that you and Joey have this relationship where you, you're very open and honest about your experiences and, and everything. I mean, that's 
huge and a lot of people don't don't have that and so i think that's some of the most important takeaways you know all the science stuff is i love to talk about and is exciting but people don't remember that <laughs> they remember um you know that they need to have these open lines of communication um, and they can find the science later. And so yeah. I think that's one of the big things I want people to walk away with. And then the other side too, is once someone is using cannabis, trying to address that in a way that isn't, that's appropriate. Um, it's easy to overreact and it's easy to underreact. And so, you know, and I think that's a lot of, you know, this podcast and the journey that, that y'all have been on is trying to figure out like, yeah, what does yeah. that look like? And going back to something we talked about a while back, what does a mature relationship with cannabis look like versus substance abuse, addiction, and these things and recognizing that the line's fuzzy mm -hmm. and, um, trying to, you know, as parents understand our kids as best we can and understand what they want out of life and what their self-actualization looks mm -hmm. like so we can help them on that journey and remind them mm -hmm. of what they want out of life and to try to hold that mirror to them so yeah. that they understand if, you know, their decisions are keeping them yeah. from that self-actualization. So I don't know, it's a bit of a ramble, but you know, I, like I said, I, I love the science, but I think that's from a parental perspective. That's yeah. what I hope people walk away with. That's very well. That, that was a, uh great point that obviously there's like the problems with it but that's needed to know there there, there is issues you, you have to find the middle ground it's not the best drug in the world and it's not the most dangerous thing in the world there's a middle ground for right. everything really yeah so yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and helping our kids navigate this crazy crazy thing they've got to go through this high school and with with vape pens everywhere and just the, the more we can talk about it openly the better and that's what we're all about here at safe home keeping it safe and and talking yeah. about harm reduction too you know if your yeah. kid's using it let's try to get them on something that is going to be mm -hmm. safer right yes. safe the yep. safest yeah. give them the chance mm -hmm. yeah yeah um how can people get a hold of you if they want to take your course or learn more about your podcast, where can they find you? Yeah. So all of the curious about cannabis stuff is at CACpodcast.com. If you go there, you'll find the podcast, but you'll also find links to events and courses and the book and all of that stuff. And then my email address is publicly available. I always tell folks if you have questions or need to know resources or, you know, whatever, I encourage people to email me directly at jason at naturaledu.com. I view myself as a public resource. All of my work has been focused on public health and safety. And so even if I can only get there to send you a link or two to get you pointed in a better direction, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll try to respond to as many emails as I can and try to help as many people as I can. I'm happy to do it. Yeah. That's really great. I know you're a really good scientist, but I, I sense that yeah. you have a really good heart and just want to keep people safe. And that's, that's amazing. Yeah, so. no, Jason right here. He's a good guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, that's, that's, I hope that I'm helping people. Oh no, you are, especially with yeah, the information definitely. that you just shared. It's gonna, it's gonna like be really important information. I know. Yeah. It already helped Joey. So there's one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that's, it's really awesome. This uh -huh. has been a great conversation. No, thank you. Thank you so yeah. much for taking your time out of your day. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Happy to do it. Yeah. Before we go, I wanted to remind you all that you can find Safe Home Podcasts on all the social media sites and also on YouTube. We also have a new website, 
safehomefamilies.com. So check it out. We have a whole index of all our episodes there, as well as speaking engagements and upcoming workshops and things like that. And we would love to hear from you anytime. You can email us at hello at safehomefamilies.com. You can also support us on Patreon if you would like to donate a small amount once a month to Safe Home Families so we can continue this work and maintain commercial-free podcasts. You just send either $5, $10, or $25 a month through patreon.com slash safehome, and they make it very easy and seamless to do. Your support really matters, and you will also get a few extra goodies as a Patreon member, such as early episode releases, discounts on workshops, and other fun things like that. So thank you all for your support. We really appreciate all that you do for our family. And I appreciate you spreading the word about our podcast to other families that you know who could use this information. Thank you all. So Jason, Joey, and I want you to stay stay safe. Here's a heads up for a workshop coming up that I'm teaching for parents who have struggling teens or young adults. Somewhere between tough love and enabling are compassionate boundaries. Tough love can be alienating and isolating and enabling can fuel destructive behavior on both sides. But compassionate boundaries help maintain your sense of self while nurturing a positive relationship with your struggling teen. Come join me on Saturday, May 28th at 10 a.m. Pacific time for an hour long interactive workshop where I will teach you practical skills to set and keep your compassionate boundaries and will lead you through real life scenarios and help you set your own compassionate boundaries within your specific situation. The workshop is $10 and Patreon members receive 50% off plus they receive a recording of the workshop afterwards. Find the registration link in the show notes or go to our website safehomefamilies.com backslash events. Thank you. Hope to see you there.